Hello, this is Stephen from the Japan Distilled Podcast. And I wanted to tell you about something that's quite exciting coming up, and that is KojiCon, February 22nd to March 7th. This is an online conference to expand your flavor making horizons, a virtual gathering of mold based fermentation experts sharing the knowledge you need to create delicious food and drinks. And I'll be one of the speakers talking about Japanese beverage fermentation. For more information, visit kojicon.org, K O J I C O N.org, or you can find them on Instagram at koji.com. Please tune in. Sometimes it's inevitable to give in. Sometimes that's the only way to begin. Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way. Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. We recently promised you an episode on Japanese whiskey, and we promised that it would be coming soon, so here it is. Today we talk about the whiskeys made in Japan. In fact, this is the first of a three part series on Japanese whiskey. In this episode, we're going to tell you this origin story as best we can and follow it right up until it's nadir in the early 2000s. In the next episode, We'll talk about Japanese whiskey joining the other dominant whiskey traditions as one of the most respected in the world, and finish up this three part series with an episode about uniquely Japanese expressions of whiskey. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, coming to you from Tokyo, Japan, and with me, as always, my partner in crime, joined at the hip in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals. We're both published authors. And we like our single malts the same way we like our colleagues unpretentious and character driven. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for more than a decade. And we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Please download and subscribe to the Japan Distilled Podcast on your preferred podcast app. Or you can download episodes directly from our website, japandistilled.com. So, Stephen, how's life in Fukuoka? Going well. Getting ready for this episode, actually, this series of episodes on Japanese whiskey. I wanted to go back and try some things that I knew that I enjoyed, reacquaint myself with the category a little bit. And I opened up my liquor cabinet and I realized that I didn't have any bottles that I was willing to open. So, I had to go shopping. I ended up finding two more bottles I am unwilling to open. <laughs> I, I actually found, really surprisingly, I found a bottle of Shizuoka Distillery's very first release. Uh, this is a distillery in Shizuoka Prefecture. What makes them interesting is they bought the equipment from the shuttered Karuizawa Distillery. And so their first release is actually called Prologue K, and the K stands for Karuizawa because they made it using that equipment. They only released 5,000 bottles, and I happened to find the last bottle. At a liquor store here in Fukuoka.、Ooh. So, very excited about that. The other thing I found was the Komagatake 2020 Limited Edition.、Uh, this is distilled and aged in the Shinshu Distillery in Nagano. It's actually the highest altitude distillery in Japan, and they only release 15,000 bottles. So, that one I'm probably more likely to crack.、Uh, I think I'm going to hold on to that Shizuoka Distillery、uh, first release, though. Sure. But I also did find、uh, Akashi White Oak. 
which is from Aegashima Distillery, which we're going to talk about later in this episode. And that's something I'm happy to drink. In fact, I'm probably going to pour a glass of that after, after we finish recording. Oh, cool. Christopher, do you drink much whiskey? What's your whiskey life like? I do drink plenty of whiskey. I'm a huge whiskey fan. I drink mostly scotch and, you know, because I can't get my hands on much Japanese whiskey like you, I wasn't able to find anything crackable in my collection. Although I do have a few samples. For instance, I have I have a little bit of this sample from Kanosuke Distillery down in Kagoshima, which is not technically a whiskey yet. It's really, really young. And but that's about it. I mean, otherwise I have scotch. I also have quite a bit of scotch when I went back and I picked up a, a few American whiskeys recently and I got a really interesting Irish whiskey, which is actually aged in Mizunara casks, which mm. to me is pretty cool that you got Japanese wood with Japanese, or sorry, with Irish whiskey in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you're the, you wrote the book, The Complete Guide to Jap, uh, Japanese Drinks, and it has a whiskey chapter in it. So I think this time, it, you know, it really is only fair if I put you on the hot seat. I, I think that is fair. All right. So why don't we start at the top? How exactly did whiskey first arrive in Japan? As far as we know, the first time Japanese people were able to try whiskey was when Commodore Matthew Perry and his black ship sailed into Edo Bay. And it actually wasn't the first time he sailed in. The first time he sailed in and he said, all right, open up or we're going to come back and we're going we're gonna to fight you. We want to trade with you. We want to do that peacefully, but we're going to give you some time. Go, go think about it. Talk, talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to go hang out somewhere else and I'll come back in a year. He actually came back in six months and he brought whiskey with him. And the whiskey was a gift uh, to the emperor. But apparently that whiskey never made it to the emperor because the samurai had way too much fun with it. <laughs> and there were apparently some pretty serious parties that happened while Commodore Perry and his black ships were there in Edo. And obviously, Japan opened up without a war. There was no fighting and the rest is history. But that was the first time that the Japanese had tried whiskey. After all that was gone, there was only a little under two casks of it that was uh, left in Japan. Once all that was gone, they didn't know how to make it. They didn't know how to get it. Huh. At that time, as Japan was opening, there was a lot of excitement around anything Western. Japanese people wanted to try anything they could from outside of Japan. Japanese alcohol producers started making fake whiskey. They had no idea how it was made. They didn't know how it got the golden color. They didn't know about barrel aging. They didn't even necessarily know it was a spirit. They started just making all these ersatz. Is that how you pronounce that word? I think I so. I think it might be. Yeah. Yeah. All these ersatz spirits or whiskeys, these fake whiskeys. And they had all sorts of weird names. Like there was one called Queen George. <laughs> and apparently, <laughs> yeah. And apparently Queen George was lethal. Uh, jumping forward to World War I, Japan really wasn't involved in the war too much. But the Americans on their way to invading actually Siberia, they were, the Americans were going up to Siberia to, to fight the Bolsheviks, I guess. And they stopped off in, in Sapporo to refuel, to, to pick up coal. And the, the sailors that, that left the ship and went into town to drink ended up getting absolutely blitzed on Queen George. So much so that there was fights and all sorts of mayhem broke out. And they actually had to leave the port. They had to wrangle all their troops back onto the boat onto the ship and leave port before they even got their coal. 
the troops had gotten so messed up on Queen George. We don't know what was in those ersatz whiskeys, but clearly it wasn't good. It was the sort of things that, that turns you red with anger and makes you want to fight and that sort of thing. So gladly, that's not what Japanese whiskey is anymore. Okay. So to summarize, basically Commodore Perry Fs off back east towards the Americas. And then there's all this this crap in a bottle that's getting people half blind. And then, so when when does authentic whiskey, when is that born in Japan? Do you know? I think there's a fair amount of propaganda around that. And I say that in the nicest possible way, but the two biggest whiskey makers in Japan now are Suntory, which actually now owns Jim Beam. Beam Suntory is the third largest liquor or spirits maker in the world. Mm. Um, and then you've got Nika. Right. And those two companies were the founding companies of Japanese whiskey. And so they would like you to believe that they started the production of Japanese whiskey. And that may be true for malt whiskey. But the Aigashima distillery actually bottled their first whiskey in 1919, which was before Suntory released anything out of their Yamazaki distillery, which was the first malt whiskey distillery. Right. Right. Now, we don't know what Aigashima made. We're, we're, we're fairly certain they knew nothing about malting. So it wasn't a malted whiskey, but it may have been a grain whiskey. And, and what I mean by that is Aigashima was actually a shochu distillery. So if they had used rice or barley, which were the two common grains at the time for shochu making in their distillate, and then they had put it in a barrel, it would in spirit be a whiskey, right? Nobody really knows that that distillery didn't have good notes. They didn't really keep records about how they produced it. So it's possible that's what they made. It's possible it was some other sorts of ersatz whiskey that they were calling whiskey. But that may have been the first whiskey made in Japan. Even before that, right, that was 1919. Even before that, there was a Japanese guy in Illinois. Ah, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's one of my favorite stories because I didn't even know about this until I started researching for my book when I was digging into the whiskey chapter. Jokichi Takamine was a chemist. He was born into a sake-making family, he graduated from Tokyo University, actually the first engineering class of Tokyo University. And he ended up coming to the States to go to the New Orleans Exposition. And he fell in love with an American woman. And he really wanted to, to marry this woman. But this was a time when you couldn't just get hitched, right? First of all, he was Japanese, interested in American. And second of all, at that time, I think, especially people that came from decent families, they had to have a living first, right? They had to have a good career. They had to have some money. So he went back to Japan to earn money and he actually made it in phosphate mining. And then he was very industrious. He then came back to the States and married this young woman named uh, Caroline Hitch, and they moved back to Japan, started a family. But Caroline's mother actually was friends with the president of the Illinois Whiskey Trust. And somehow in the communications that happened within the family, she realized that Takamine knew how to sacrifice grains. Because in, as we have talked about in previous episodes, for sake and shochu and awamori, you use koji to sacrifice grains to get the sugars that the yeast needs to make the alcohol. So she convinces her daughter and her son-in-law to move to the States. They relocate from Japan to, to Chicago. 
And he begins experimenting with a maltless whiskey process called the Takamine process, which was using koji to break down the starches in the grains to make whiskey. And he ended up getting it patented and he licensed the patent to the Illinois Whiskey Trust. And this came out in the news in 1891. So we're talking about 20, but that's, that's almost, it's almost, it's almost 30 years. That's right. It's what, 28 years before Aigashima Distillery released their first whiskey. The story appears in the Chicago Tribune about how whiskey is going to become more affordable because it turns out that the Takamine process is more efficient than malting. And two weeks after that article appears in the Chicago Tribune, the building where they were doing the experiments burns down. Mysteriously. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And it wasn't for another... That was 1891. It was 1894 when they finally started to produce the Takamine process whiskey in the Manhattan distillery in Peoria, Illinois. And it was only three months later that that distillery went bankrupt <laughs> and went out of business. So... Nobody really knows what happened to that early Takamine process whiskey that ended up in those barrels, but probably it just got sold off to creditors and blended into other makes, other, you know, other brands and things like that. And it was just lost to history. Mm -hmm. Now, Takamine ended up doing fine. Like the whiskey was almost a side project for him. He ended up moving to New York City. He licensed a whole bunch of medications to Park Davis Company, which was a huge pharmaceutical company at the time. And he ended up isolating medical adrenaline, which has saved millions of lives. Mm. Uh, and it also made him a fortune. And he ended up donating the cherry blossom trees to Washington, D.C. Yeah, I love that part of it. In, I believe, 1910. So just an amazing story of this, this biochemist who actually was making whiskey in the States. A Japanese biochemist was making whiskey in the States well before whiskey was being made in Japan. Just fascinating to me that that story exists. It's an amazing story. I love that story. So how about malt whiskey in Japan though? You know, geographically in Japan, when is malt whiskey actually being made here? So that actually starts when Masataka Taketsuru, that, that name is a mouthful, and I always wonder if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Masataka Taketsuru, also the son of a sake-making family called Taketsuru Shuzo, which actually still exists in Hiroshima. They still make sake today. He was sent to Scotland to learn how to make scotch. How he caught the eye of his employers was that he was actually really good at making the ersatz spirits without like killing <laughs> people or getting, making people <laughs> sick. So they were like, this guy has promise. Maybe he should learn how to make real whiskey. <laughs> so they send him to Scotland. He ends up studying English and then he studies a little bit more about distilling at University of Glasgow. And, you know, it, again, you have this Japanese guy dropped into a foreign country at a time when international travel is not that common. You know, this is what, 1917, 1918, something like that. So around the time that the Egashima distillery is releasing their first whiskey. And, but he ends up talking his way into several distilleries to do internships. And then also in this, in this whole process, he ends up, just like Takamine, he ends up meeting and falling in love with and eventually marrying, in this case, a Scottish woman mm. uh, named Rita Cohen. They end up as newlyweds moving to Campbelltown, Scotland, which at the time was the largest producer of scotch in Scotland because it was, I think my timing is off. It, it, I don't think it was still the largest producer at that time. Although at one point, Campbelltown was the largest producer of scotch in Scotland because it was accessible by river to Glasgow, which was the largest market. 
And at that time, there weren't trains running to some of the more remote distillery regions. And so Campbelltown just had that ease of accessibility that made them popular scotches just, just because of the trade was so easy. But Taketsudo ended up living in Campbelltown with Rita, with his wife, for six months and working at the Hazelburn Distillery and ended up basically taking notes about everything. He was obsessive about note-taking and he wrote everything down. His notes ended up becoming essentially the Japanese whiskey Bible, which people, I believe, still read when they're learning about whiskey making in Japan today. So, Taketsudu ends up with Rita returning to Japan, but when he returned in 1920, Japan had entered a recession. So, his employer didn't want to build a, a distillery. They didn't want to make an authentic malt whiskey distillery. So, he ends up quitting. And fortunately, Shinjiro Tori was looking to start a whiskey distillery. And he is, that Tori is of Suntory. So, he is the founder of Suntory Whiskey. He convinces Taketsudu to help him build a whiskey distillery in Yamazaki, which is on the border between Kyoto and Osaka. Taketsudu didn't think this was a good idea because he wanted to build a Scotch-style distillery and he didn't feel like that was the right region. But Tori was the businessman and he said, look, we're between Kyoto and Osaka and it's an easy train ride to Tokyo. We can sell a lot of whiskey. And it turns out in some ways, both men were right, but they ended up having to basically break up before they both realized that. And Takitsuru ended up helping build the Yamazaki distillery, which still operates today. Their first brand was Shirafuda, Shirofuda which meant white label. And it really met with tepid sales. Like that was their first release and it really didn't sell well. Taketsudo actually ended up getting demoted and then quitting his job with Suntory. And that was basically their breakup. So he's unemployed and Rita is doing what every foreigner ends up seemingly doing when they come to Japan. She's teaching English. And it turns out one of her students is the wife of an industrialist who they convinced to invest in opening a distillery with Taketsudu. Hmm. And he decides he wants to open his distillery in Hokkaido, which is as far from Tokyo as you can get. It's on the north shore of Hokkaido in Yoichi. It's not even in Sapporo, which is the big city, right? At this point in time, it's several days travel from Yoichi to Tokyo. So, from a logistical standpoint, it didn't make any sense, but he really believed that was the best place to make whiskey in Japan because of how similar the climate was to Scotland. And the Yochi Distillery opened in 1934, released their first whiskey in 1940 on the eve of the war. And the reason that they survived was that the Japanese Navy decided that they needed to have whiskey on board for the sailors because the British Navy was their model and the British Navy. I believe the British Navy drank rum. Is that right? I think they still do, maybe. But the Japanese Navy decided they were going to drink whiskey. And because of they knew that the war was coming, they wanted to have a domestic source. And so they actually contracted with the Yoichi Distillery, with Nika, as the whiskey for the sailors. And that's really what kept the lights on for that distillery during the war because it was considered a war industry because the troops needed their booze. And so, they, they could still get the uh, fuel that they needed and the, the grains that they needed to produce the whiskey. Right. 
sorry, that was kind of a long explanation, but this stuff gets me excited, clearly. No, it's fascinating. I mean, that brings us all the way through the war. However, post-war, you've got an impoverished nation. And they can't really afford any premium Western spirits, much less whiskey made domestically, probably that they've never heard of. How did this spirit become as popular as it is today some 80 years later? It really stems from a couple of things. As you said, people didn't have a lot of money. And so obviously they could sell the whiskey to the occupying troops or to wealthy Japanese businessmen who wanted to seem sophisticated or that sort of thing. But it really wasn't a drink of the people. But Tori, being the consummate businessman, it was actually his son uh, who started what are called Tori's bars. Tori's bars are modeled after British pubs, beer pubs, except they're drinking drams of whiskey. And so you could get a dram, you know, a single pour of Suntory whiskey for about the price of a cup of coffee in these pubs. So it was a really short pour, but then it was it was diluted. And so that became the style. I mean, Japanese people, as we've talked about before, very common to dilute spirits, right? You're mixing in all different sorts of ways to bring down the alcohol percentage. And so basically, they were serving whiskey at a beer strength. And what made it so affordable is the taxes on beer were higher than the taxes on whiskey. So they could actually make a very affordable drink. And these Tories bars became so popular that it was estimated there were about 1,500 of these bars across Japan at its peak. There are only a handful remaining today, but they were like the place to be. They were basically a national chain of whiskey bars. That's bonkers. Whiskey pubs, basically. That is absolutely nuts. Isn't it? Yeah. And that, that whole dilution culture, the, the whole practice of diluting spirits. Yeah, 1950s, 1960s Japan, you've got Mizuwari whiskey and even Oyuwari whiskey. So a cool water mix, hot water mix. I don't know how many people out there have tried whiskey with hot water. It's not that bad, actually. But that was often how people were enjoying it. And I think that, as Stephen said, Basically, the distilleries were making whiskey that could be diluted, and that's just amazing to me. Now, today, we're still diluting. I mean, if you come up to Tokyo, if you go to any city in Japan, now we're talking highballs, right? It's highballs everywhere. That's right. But there are a couple other phrases that come up. You've got the the one that I learned actually on the SSI Shochu Kikisakeshi test here in Japan was the twice up. And the twice up what is basically a 50-50 whiskey to cool water with no ice. So you basically are cutting the proof of the whiskey into the 20s. Mm-hmm. And it's called a twice up. There's also a half up, which is whiskey and soda over ice. I think it's about a 50-50 blend of whiskey and club soda or seltzer. Yeah, so there's a ton of dilution. It's just so normal. It is. And... That's a really interesting thing for me with the way that Japanese whiskeys express themselves. They really are on a a fruitier or brighter style most often because of this intention to dilute. I've tried diluting some scotches or some American whiskeys, and they often get sort of bitter and dull with too much dilution. Right. They're not particularly interesting. They're intended to be consumed, I think, neat, 
straight or maybe with just a splash of water. But with Japanese whiskeys, some of them just really, really brighten up and become beautiful, enjoyable drinks through dilution. And so that's one thing that's different. The other thing that's really interesting for me is the whole concept of blending. Mm -hmm. It's a huge part of Japanese whiskey in order to capture those uh, those fruity and bright flavors and aromas that are that go so well with dilution. But because Suntory and Nika started out of the gate as the two, the only two games in town, and they did not like each other. Tori never forgave Taketsuda for leaving and going and be going into competition with him. He 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 demoted his ass. How's that how's that not worthy of a, <laughs> he did <laughs> of a see you tomorrow type of message? Yeah, but I guess he just didn't expect Taketsuda to have the gumption to go out and like raise the funding to open another distillery. Yeah, fair enough. And actually to succeed, right? And so there is no barrel trading. You know, it's not like Scotland where distilleries will trade trade casks or, you know, you trade to third party blenders, you know, bottling companies or anything like that. Everything's kept in house. Right. And so what's ended up happening is, especially for the big boys, especially for Suntory and Nika, is they've got a wide variety of still designs, a wide variety of, of fermentation methods, and they end up making all their own different single malts and grain whiskeys that they then blend into their products. So it's kind of like having multiple distilleries under the same roof, in a sense. That's right. That's right. And when... Things were going well, which was well into the nineteen seventies, so nineteen sixties, seventies, eighties. That was the Japanese like boom, mm-hmm. right? This is when Japan went from, you know, this country that had been shattered by war to rebuilding to becoming an economic powerhouse. To being, you know, there's a reason that in the movie Die Hard that it's a Japanese building that, <laughs> right, <laughs> that they're right. called to, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where all the money was, mm-hmm. and. So the Japanese boom really led to people wanting to drink great whiskeys and the Japanese whiskey makers were doing well and drinking whiskey was seen as sophisticated because it was foreign. And the same thing happened in wine. Wine became extremely popular during this era. The other thing that happened though is when that bubble burst and it burst in a huge way, the entire industry collapsed. The Karuizawa distillery, which I mentioned at the top of the show, went out of business. Uh... There was another distillery that went out of business. Actually, I think that there were several. I mean, there's some brands now. You'll see bottles occasionally on auction mm-hmm. uh, here in Japan. And I've never heard of those products before. And then you look it up and it was like, oh, this was this little mid-sized company that was going along making their domestic blends and they were doing fine until the crash. And then they were out of business. And so there's all of these sorts of stories in the in the Japanese whiskey world. And because of that crash, I mean, the big boys survived, obviously. Mm-hmm. but they they really they slashed production. I mean, they were just making enough whiskey to keep the lights on because they didn't want to fill their warehouses and not being able not be able to sell what they filled it with, right? Right. And in fact, sort of the most cautionary story for me in all of this is the Mars distillery. They're owned by Hombo, which is one of the biggest uh beverage companies in Japan. Yeah. And Hombo bought the Mars winery in Yamanashi. And when they did that, they they also got the the Mars whiskey distillery. And they started making whiskey just as the as, as the crash happened. Wow. 
this has been a repeated problem for for Mars or for for Hombo every time they start to ramp up production is when the whole thing crashes. <laughs> they get on the roller coaster just as it's about to go downhill at a crazy speed. <laughs> That's right. And and they actually they shuttered their Shinshu distillery and moved the stills to Kagoshima to use them for shochu production. <laughs> right. And and, then, and, then, and now and then when <laughs> and then once whiskey once whiskey took off again, they're like, oh man, now we gotta go get new stills for this for uh, the Shinshu distillery. Crap. <laughs> so they made replicas of those stills and and uh reopened the Shinshu distillery. And but then they take take those other stills and and then they've opened now the Tsunuki distillery. So like right. they're always like a little bit off pace, hopefully this time. As Japanese whiskeys started to become popular again, uh, Mars will be able to, to to benefit from that a little bit. Well, they make good shochu too, so they'll always be able to fall back on that. That's that's fair, and they make a lot of things well. Actually, their wines very well regarded here in Japan, and I'm, I'm sure they're going to be fine. But they always seem to miss the trend, and hopefully, that's not what's happening now that they're getting back into the whiskey game. That it's going to end up all coming crashing down, right? But you know, it's not without risk. And that's what I think we'll get dig a little bit more into in our future episodes. We're going to get much more into what the modern whiskey scene looks like here in Japan, what the distilleries are doing, all the sure, new places gonna, opening. There's all kinds of things right. we're going to cover. But anyway, we'll leave all that for, for future episodes or for the next couple episodes. Yeah. Nice, nice. Cool. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I didn't know a lot of those things about the history of these major players in the domestic whiskey market, the origins. Of course, I knew the Takamine story, but I didn't know all of the particulars of the riff between Suntory and Nika. I love that story. I think that's a lot of fun. And it does go a long way to explaining why there's very little barrel trading here. There's very little cross support within the industry, they don't do anything to help each other. That's for damn sure. Much to everyone's detriment, it seems. But uh, yeah, much more on the modern state of affairs in our next episode. Can't wait for that. And thank you everybody out there for listening once again. If you're interested in learning more about the world of Japanese whiskey, you'll definitely want to pick up a copy of Stephen's book, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks which also covers a lot of other Japanese alcohol traditions such as sake, awamori, and shochu. I would also recommend Brian Ashcraft's book, Japanese Whiskey. And both of these books are available on Amazon as well as through your local bookseller. Also, please tune in every week to our Shochu Pros Show Tuesday Instagram Live on my Instagram feed. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. For those who care to look it up, Pellegrini is P-E-L-L-E-G-R-I-N-I. So, Stephen, where can we find you? As always, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Shochu underscore Danji. That's S-H-O-C-H-U underscore D-A-N-J-I. Though I've also started manning the Japan Distilled Instagram and Twitter accounts. So you can reach me there as well. By the way, can you believe those handles were available? That was very lucky. And I'm surprised that we didn't check that before we bought the URL. <laughs> Good point. So as for additional reading, I'd also like to recommend The Outstanding Whiskey Rising by Stefan Van Eiken. That book is so well-researched that it was translated back into Japanese and is now the definitive guide to whiskey in Japan. Uh, but beware, it's a brick. It's a regular encyclopedia. 
Also, as a reminder, this was the first of a three-part series on Japanese whiskeys. In a couple of weeks, we'll be back to you with an episode on the emergence of Japanese whiskey on the international scene. And we'll finish up this series with an episode about uniquely Japanese expressions of whiskey. Back to you, Christopher. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. And if so, please take a moment to rate or review us on your favorite podcasting platform. And we'll be back in your feed soon with more Japan Distilled Goodness. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that show a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese ghost stories. And to everyone out there, wherever you are, whatever you're sipping right now, Stephen and I wish you a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. <laughs>